It's Friday, August the 28th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining the social, economic, political, and geopolitical implications in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. It's my great honor to be your host today. Now, for those who have been watching Goodfellows, and we are now wrapping up our fifth month of these broadcasts, hard to see, but we've been doing this for five months now, you know the drill. But for those of you who are first-time viewers, here's what you're about to see. For the better part of the next hour, a conversation featuring three Hoover Institution fellows, three good fellows as we like to call them with a wink and a nod to Martin Scorsese, but three fellows offering their unique insights into what may lie ahead in these uncertain times. Now let's meet the good fellows, beginning with my colleague, John Cochran. He's an economist and the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. John, how are you today? I'm doing fine, thanks. A little smoky, but uh, here in California, but everything else is great. Very good. Gracing us from his wilderness outpost is uh, our colleague, Neil Ferguson, a renowned historian, author, uh, commentator, documentarian, the list goes on. Neil is also the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Neil, how goes it today? Well, one of my other roles is as personal trainer and event manager for two small boys. And uh, sometimes seems as if that, uh, that role dominates the others. Uh, working from home and distance learning are a terrible combination, it seems to me. And that's a good uh, tee up to our third good fellow who also this morning had to uh, get two children set up on Zoom for their classes today. Now, ordinarily, our third good fellow is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Kawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, but the good general is on assignment today. So we are fortunate to be joined by our colleague, Lanhee Chen. Lanhee Chen is the David and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies here at the Hoover Institution. He also was the policy director for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Lonnie, how are you today? Doing fine. This has been an aspiration of mine to be on this podcast. So I'm really quite quite excited to be with Neil and John and, and you, Bill. So thanks. So we'll, make, we'll make you sure you regret it when you're done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we're so glad to have you, but yeah. Cochran beat me to it. <laughs> yes, the words, careful what you wish for come from mine, Lonnie. But uh, let's start the conversation. This is part two, actually. Last week, we looked at the Democratic Convention and talked about the existence of the Democratic Party in America. So now it's Republicans' turn in the spotlight with their convention having wrapped up last night. And Lonnie, I want to begin the conversation with you because in 2012, you were quite involved in the writing of that year's Republican Party platform. Uh, I actually looked it up online. It's the We Believe in America platform, Lonnie, and it begins with this preamble, quote, the 2012 Republican platform is a statement of who we are and what we believe as a party and our vision for a stronger and freer America. Now, Lonnie, in 2012, in 2020, there is no Republican Party platform. Technically, there's not a new platform. They just took the 2016 platform and put it in as a placeholder. But the fact that they did not write a new document, Lonnie, does that suggest that the Republican Party is struggling to decide who they are and what it is? I don't think the Republican Party is struggling to know who they are. I think it's quite clear what the Republican Party is, which is, uh, you know, a vessel or a, a mechanism through which to understand Donald Trump's policy preferences. And I, I don't, you know, first of all, I, I don't think that's necessarily a problem because party platforms are always statements of what the nominee's preferences are. They have been for many, many years. And, you know, every four years when the platform committee of the Republican Party gets together, I've actually been involved in the writing of two platforms, the 2004 platform, which was President Bush's reelection platform, mm -hmm. and then in 2012 for, for Romney. And, you know, inevitably what happens is you get together and you figure out, well, what does the nominee want? What, what's going to be important for the nominee to have in the platform? And you make sure it gets in the platform. 
And if anybody acts up, you, you put them in line. You basically say, look, this is the nominee's platform and you know this is his policy and you're gonna like it. So the notion that they don't have a platform, I mean, yes, the optics aren't great. And I would agree that they would have been better off just even if they wanted to take the same document and pass the same document, but at least do it in a pro forma way that probably would have been better for the optics. Mm-hmm. But substantively, the idea that the, you know, the, the fact that they don't have a platform this time, that they're basically reaffirming the Trump platform from last time, you know, that doesn't, doesn't bother me as much as it does some others in the mainstream media from a substantive perspective, because that's what the platform's always been. It's always been a statement of, the, of what the nominee wants. Mm-hmm. Neil, John? Uh, let me jump in. I, I was, I was uh, interested that the Democratic Convention had uh, very little discussion of policy in the speeches and a very detailed platform, which if you read it, is a remarkable document. <laughs> we might come back to that. Whereas the Republican ones seem to have quite a few ideas in the speeches. Uh, Trump's speech last night actually was a fairly conventional speech, uh, full of policy achievements, whether you like them or not. Half of them I like, half of them I don't. But nonetheless, there was a lot there and a, and a lot of policy in the speeches about uh, where we're going forward. Uh, and I, I disagree a little with Lonnie that there is no Republican Party independent of Trump. Now, clearly, Donald Trump is the elephant in the room uh, in many ways. Uh, his personality as well as his preferences. But uh, there was a Tim Cook, there was a Nikki Haley, there, there's a machinery, there's, there's a, uh, a party that will redefine itself uh, in the next four years, uh, whether in victory or in loss, it will redefine itself. And uh, I agree tremendously though with the need. Uh, if the Republican party just becomes a consultant driven pastiche of things that appeal to certain voters, it will not go far or will certainly not uh, win any of my enthusiasm. Uh, if it finds ideas, uh, a coherent uh, strategy, a coherent uh, set of ideas in the way it did in the past, uh, then I, I think it will be, it could be very vital again. Uh, the, the idea, well, we all, um, there's lots of ideas in the Democratic Party, say what you like of them, uh, but a, a contrary set of clear ideas, I think would be important for them going forward. Okay, Neil, do you want to break this tie? seems to me that we've got to avoid the temptation of thinking that these conventions are like past conventions. And I don't just mean because they've had to be partly virtual or at least scaled down in the case of the Republican uh, convention. I think we need to recognize the profound structural change that's happened to American politics in the space of of the period that Lanny's talking about. Um, I mean, if you go back to those those early uh, campaigns you were involved in, it was still a time when uh, social media played a relatively small role and advertising was mostly done on TV. Uh, But I read this week a really terrific piece by Kevin Roos in uh, the New York Times, which still occasionally does publish good stuff, uh, making the point that if you thought uh, the way to follow the conventions was to watch CNN or for that matter, Fox, you were wrong because there is this parallel world, the world of Facebook, uh, which uh, channels uh, snippets of the conventions, not the live stream, but snippets uh, to Facebook users uh, and Facebook groups in ways that are completely different from the conventional channels. And the point that that Kevin Roos makes in the piece is that if you look at, at Facebook and look at what trends on Facebook through the past few weeks, it's an amazingly uh, right-wing image that emerges 
it's a it's astonishing to me, but but this is borne out by the data in, in the the piece based on Facebook's own CrowdTangle tool that Ben Shapiro is the dominant public intellectual uh, in America today, at least as far as Facebook users as con are concerned, with 56 million interactions on his Facebook page in the last 30 days. And if you just look at the top performing posts on Facebook, US Facebook pages, in the last day, it's Ben Shapiro number one, Ben Shapiro number two, number three, Blue Lives Matter, four, Ben Shapiro, five, David J. Harris, I have no idea who he is, six, Ben Shapiro, seven, Ben Shapiro, eight, Sports Center, nine, Sean King, and 10, NPR somehow sneaks in. So I, I think that this is a completely different political landscape than the one that we grew up with. And unless you recognize that Facebook is now a very major part of the American political ecosystem, you're going to get the election wrong. People got the election wrong four years ago because they didn't realize that Trump was dominating Clinton on Facebook as well as on Google search and, of course, on Twitter. So I think you've you got to think about this in a completely new way. And if you think about it in this new way, actually, the Republicans have crushed it and the Democrats are in a deep, deep hole. Uh, because I think the issue that now is uppermost in, in key swing voters' minds is the issue of public order, of law and order. Uh, and it has been almost perfect timing for the Republicans uh, that there has been this huge eruption of violence in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, simultaneously with their, their conference, because it, uh, their convention, because it underscores some of the key themes that were there uh, in Trump's quite disciplined, if rather lengthy, convention speech. So let's talk about Kenosha for a minute, and let's look at a video clip, a uh, comment made the other day by Don Lemon, who is a, uh, an anchor on CNN. Let's, let's run the clip. I do think that uh, this, what you said was happening in Kenosha is a Rorschach test for the entire country. And I think this is a blind spot for Democrats. I think Democrats are ignoring this problem or hoping that it will go away. Now, Neil, a couple of things I'd like to note here. Number one, uh, in addition to Lemon saying that, Joe Biden actually came out and talked about uh, the situation and actually made the distinction between violence and protesting, which is something he probably in retrospect should have done during his acceptance speech last week. But secondly, Neil, if you look at the election map, Kenosha County is an interesting piece of land. It's not Portland, Oregon. It's not Seattle, Washington. It is not Minneapolis, Minnesota. It is a battleground county and a battleground state. Donald Trump won it by 255 votes in 2016, the first Republican to win there since Nixon in 1972. So now you have this issue, it seems to me, Neil, is a test of nimbyism, if you will. One thing for people maybe in a swing state to see it happening in Portland, Oregon, but when it happens in your backyard, Neil, does that change the equation? Well, it does. Even before these events, there had been a significant shift amongst Wisconsin voters on the issue of Black Lives Matter. Uh, you'll remember that in the uh, heat of the the moment after the death of George Floyd, there was a great surge of popular support for Black Lives Matter. Uh, but that has essentially uh, mean reverted uh, in the last couple of months. Uh, so you now actually have something like 50%, 51% disapproval amongst white voters in Wisconsin. And this was before things really, really blew up in Kenosha. I, I think listening to, to Don Lemon, I heard that that clip when uh, it was first broadcast, I thought to myself, they know they're in trouble uh, or he would not be saying this. And here's another illustration of how in trouble they are. Yesterday uh, on Twitter, a particularly interesting clip went 
viral, I hate using that term, but it really describes it because it was just popping up all over the place in my feed. It was a speech by a civil rights veteran from Tennessee, Representative John DeBerry, uh, who also happens to be a pastor. Uh, a tremendously powerful speech, much more powerful than Don Lemon's, saying that violence betrays the spirit of the civil rights movement. It was extremely moving. Everybody should watch it. It's about seven minutes long. Uh, but what's fascinating is that, and it wasn't made clear to me when I first saw it, that uh, actually the representative John DeBerry was, as we would say in Britain, deselected by the Democrats back in April. He, he's no longer a Democratic candidate for the Tennessee legislature because of his uh, anti-abortion views. So this illustrates, I think, very well the problem the Democrats have, uh, that there is a significant portion, not just of, of black voters, but of voters generally, who are deeply appalled by the violence that is playing out in cities all over America. And this has been going on uh, for months, not weeks. Uh, and there is also a constituency in the Democratic Party that actually thinks the violence is okay, and is in fact down with the harassment that we saw going on in the streets of Washington, D.C. after the president's uh, speech last night. And this is a deep and dangerous division. It explains why Biden was not more forceful on the subject of denouncing violence. There are a whole bunch of pro pro progressives in his party who think it's actually great that things are kicking off in the streets of American cities. Uh, and I, I do think this could be fatal. Here's another little snippet, which I think is very telling. And it's one of the great ironies of the year. A really nice uh, academic scholarly article was published earlier this year about 1968. You mentioned Nixon Bill. This article made the point that when violence uh, occurred in protests in 68, uh, in those areas where there were violent protests, it helped Richard Nixon's candidacy. Uh, where protests were peaceful, it didn't. It actually helped Humphrey. Now, what's fascinating about this article is that the author of it uh, lost his job uh, in a uh, left-leaning progressive uh, think tank for having published it, because you're not supposed to say, uh, it's not woke to say that violent protest is actually harmful to the progressive cost. It, it will cause, it will be hugely ironic if actually that article helps us understand why Donald Trump got re-elected uh, in 2020. And I hope uh, that the uh, author gets, uh, if not his original job back, uh, maybe a research fellowship at Hoover. Well, John and Lonnie, one thing that's curious about Don Lemon's statement is it's sort of he equates, if you will, this um, the, these acts of writing uh, almost like the clapper, you know, that device clap on, clap off, and you can just sort of clap and stop this. And here's the question. How do you how do you put the genie back in the bottle? If you're the Democrats and you think this is a liability, how do you contain this? Because I'm not sure that the people out in the streets are necessarily motivated by Joe Biden or, or it, I think they're just out there doing their thing. So I think both parties would like to have this a little both ways. Uh, this is trouble right now for the Democrats in particular, but it's true of the Republicans. Um, you know, the, many Democratic politicians like Biden said, oh, yes, but we, of course, support peaceful protest and understanding and so forth. The question is, will they do something about it? Right. Uh, on the other side, you see uh, the Republicans desperately trying to avoid the constant smear, Trump is a racist, you're a racist, voting for Trump is racist. Mm -hmm. uh, the number of black faces in the Republican convention was remarkable and, and praiseworthy. They're really re reaching out. Um, and their, their difficult thing is to say, we need to, to distinguish this question of, uh, you know, the cops are shooting too many people and they're shooting too many black people and we need to do something about this. Mm -hmm. But to not allow that to get uh, 
co-inflated with support for the, the, the rioting that's going on as well. And that's a, that's a tricky question. So far, the Republicans, I think, are doing a better job of having it both ways, that we will do something about it. We will reform as they creditably put in a cr criminal justice reform uh, in the way that, that most uh, people want. It has been interesting that so many civil rights leaders from the 1960s, so many um, actual black people don't want to defund the police. They want more and better police. They want jobs, they want communities, they want businesses where they are, and, and they think this is nuts. Uh, and they are speaking out about it. And um, it's quite noticeable how many of the protesters are white. This is not black people erupting in protest at the injustice. This is white millennials coming out of mom's basement to go out and play anarchist and, and burn things down. It's not just violence, it's also destruction. Uh, many, I think some of the clips you'll have us have, have many, uh, you know, mostly young white people out there uh, doing this sort of thing. Uh, that's an interesting, uh, interesting difference. And the, the destruction, I think, more than the violence is, is something worth noting. We've noticed for a couple of weeks, the videos of Manhattan all boarded up, Chicago all boarded up. The question, which will certainly be worse by the time of the election, is the emptying out and, and the catastrophic fall of America's cities. Uh, the businesses are leaving, the people who pay taxes are leaving, the crime is exploding. Uh, this will certainly resonate to the party that can say, we're going to do something about it if they can avoid the smear of, of taking sides in, in uh, you know, we're for or against black people. Right, so Lonnie, does Trump have an advantage here? Well, yeah, look, I think he has an advantage insofar as there are certain things that are accepted conventional wisdom on the left and by extension than most of the media that people in Wisconsin and Michigan and other parts of the country sort of look at and they scratch their heads, right? Okay, so this notion that you have to support the protesters but decry violence, when it looks like all that's happening is violence and not protesting, I think people sort of think, well, tell me how that makes any sense mm -hmm. that we are not more forcefully saying that we need to restore order to our communities, right? I think that's one thing. The other thing I'll just mention, which is a little bit off topic, but I'll, I'll, I think it's still somewhat relevant is there's a lot of um, mask shaming going on right now, okay? So there was all of this dialogue on, on major news networks. I watched a lot of them last night right. about, you know, how is it that a bunch of people can show up at the White House and watch President Trump and they don't have a mask on. Why are, this is a massive super spreader event, not to mention all of the protesting that's going on. And they say, well, oh, no, wait, when people protest, they're wearing masks. And it's like, there are plenty of clips of people protesting who aren't wearing masks. So why is it that one is socially acceptable? And by the way, no one shall discuss the idea that a protest can be a super spreading COVID event. No one shall discuss that because if you do, then somehow you are not accepting the, uh, the notion that you know, these people are allowed to protest, which of course they are. But you know, the, the, this is one of the things I think, again, people look at this and they say, how does that make any sense? How does it make any sense that you're saying on the one hand, you can't show up to watch a speech outdoors, but you can protest and maybe you can even loot without a mask on. So, so I think this, this conventional wisdom people look at and they say, oh, this doesn't make much sense to me. For, for safety reasons, when you're throwing Molotov cocktails, make sure to have a mask on so That's you right. don't spread COVID-19. <laughs>
Also, it helps to conceal your identity. Masks are for dual purpose uh, at protests, unlike at legal uh, uh, conventions. I, I was going to just ponder for a minute uh, what the kind of uh, political consequences might be, uh, because it doesn't seem to me clear yet uh, that, that Trump is out of trouble. Uh, there, there's still, it seems to me, a huge problem, a mountain he has to climb, uh, not only because of the economic situation the country is in. I mean, the recovery's kind of stalled because of that second wave that we've talked about in previous episodes. But there's also kind of clear evidence that he's lost some support where he really needs it. I was really struck by some research I saw earlier this week showing that seniors uh, have been moving away from Trump. And this is a really bad sign for him. Of course, they're moving away because the mishandling of the pandemic uh, has exposed that uh, age group uh, to, to much more serious risk than the kind of people protesting in the streets. I think loss of support among seniors on handling of the pandemic is probably the single biggest weakness that Trump has. But the second is that if the economy's recovery seems to be stalling, uh, then those people who support him because of his economic record are also going to, I think, be in play. So let's not uh, jump to the conclusion that the breakdown of public order is going to get Trump re-elected. I think he's still uh, the underdog on the basis of the things that, that probably matter most, like the, the pandemic and, and the economy. One last point. It seems to me that it must be clear to many voters that what's happening in cities across America is a failure of local government, of local authority. Uh, and that mainly is a failure uh, of the Democrats. And for me, the great cognitive dissonance of American political life today is how anybody can have enthusiasm about the Democrats controlling the nation when the parts of the nation they already control seem to be on fire for various different reasons. Uh, rural California's on fire because of, of years of mismanagement of public lands. And urban America's on fire because the Democrats can't actually stop people which is a fairly basic function of government. How come a California Democrat uh, is on the ticket uh, in Kamala Harris when California looks like the best advertisement for Republican government that you could possibly wish for? Well, the other thing about, that, other thing about that speech last night was the California Democrats, sorry to step on you, John, the California Democrat wasn't mentioned much. Bernie Sanders was the uh, running mate last night, not Kamala Harris, but go ahead, John. Well, that's, you know, the, the Republicans have to overcome. There's a large section of white suburbia that doesn't want to be called racist. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's an important fact that they have to overcome. And so not going too hard on Harris, uh, you know, there's a conscious choice there. But I want to get back to the first thing that Neil said. There is this elephant in the room, which is the character and personality of Donald J. Trump. Right. We're policy wonks. And so we talk about the policies we like and we don't like, and that there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, but I think what's turning off that, let's guess, 20%, Lonnie will, will have more numbers than I do of the electorate, is just the zaniness, the tweets that come out that eventually, you know, don't go anywhere. The staff says, no, no, we're not going to postpone the election. Thank you very much. Uh, but there is, um, I, I want to use neutral terms to discuss to discuss it, but there is the the personality of what comes out on the Twitter stream. And I think that is leaving policy aside, turning off a large, that's what's going to make this a close election when otherwise I think it would be a landslide. Well, Lonnie, let's get your thoughts on that. But first, let's run a clip from the president last night in his speech. And then, Lonnie, I want to talk about Trump's lasting influence on the party. I have done nothing but fight for you. 
I did what our political establishment never expected and could never forgive breaking the cardinal rule of Washington politics. I kept my promise. Bonnie, well, here is David Brooks writing in the New York Times, quote, the basic Trump worldview on immigration, trade, foreign policy, etc., will shape the GOP for decades the way the basic Reagan worldview did for decades. A thousand smarter conservatives will be building a new party after 2020, but one that builds from the framework Trump established. Buying or selling that? Uh, yeah, I think it's an overstatement. Uh, l- l- let me come back first, though, to um, this question of kind of, you know, the, the dynamics of the race, as it were, as we sit here mm-hmm. after the conventions. And I think John is absolutely right to, to talk about Really, if, if, if you think about what's happening here going forward, the challenge for Trump really is that there are a bunch of voters who probably look at all of this that's going on and they say, you know what, in the absence of the tweets and in the absence of all this other stuff, there's no question that they would, I think they would vote for Trump. Um, the issue is, can they sort of look past all of that? And if you look at the convention this week, so much of the programming, at least in my mind, was designed to soften the edges of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So you had Ivanka's introduction, which I thought was quite effective, where she basically says, look, you know, my dad does some things that you might not agree with. He says things you may not agree with. He says it in a way you might not agree with. But at the end of the day, focus on the fundamentals. And I think for, for Trump, you know, that's got to be the case going forward. That's got to be the thing that he comes back to, which is notwithstanding all this other stuff, Uh, he represents the kind of change and common sense in some cases that a lot of these voters, and I think it's appealing to seniors. We talked about the senior demographic, which is going to be important in Pennsylvania and Florida, two states that Trump probably needs to win, but but also to other demographics, suburban demographics, ex-urban demographics, where I think the president has got to do better than the party did in 2018 in the midterm elections if if he wants Mm -hmm. to win re-election. Now, on the question of the Republican Party going forward, Look, I think um, to John's first point, which is, you know, people like Tim Scott and Nikki Haley that may represent a, a different frame from Donald Trump. I think the idea that somehow now we have completely shifted the window and that somehow now we're going to be working off of this pro-tariff, uh, you know, America first foreign policy box, and that's where the right. Republican Party is going from, I just don't agree with that because then that presumes that there hasn't been in past years a diversity of thought within the party on some of these issues. So I think actually what will happen if Trump loses Mm -hmm. is there will be a very vibrant discussion about whether the window stays where Trump has put it or whether it's actually somewhere else or it ends up being in the middle. I think if Trump wins re-election, it is far more likely that things reset a little bit more and that we are talking a little bit more about a newer normal for the Republican Party. But the notion of if win or lose, that Trump has somehow redefined this whole thing, and those of us who believe, for example, in the value of free trade are gonna somehow go away and forget that we believe in those things, I think misapprehends what's actually going on. Neil, let me run a theory by you here, and that's that Republicans have been searching for Ronald Reagan's successor since Ronald Reagan left the stage. They've been looking for Another brand of Reagan conservatism, George W. Bush tried compassionate conservatism, but that was wiped out in the 9-11 attack. He became a wartime presidency. Uh, Donald Trump comes along, 
uh, running on a different form of conservatism, if you will. But Donald Trump leaves the stage, Neil. What happens next to Republicans? Is somebody going to step in and try to be Trump? That seems to me to be very difficult. I think only Trump can be Trump. Maybe Trump Jr. will try to be Trump. But you have seen Republicans this week at least introduce themselves. Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Tom Cotton, who spoke last night, the Arkansas senator, people who were talked about in 2024. But Neil, and obviously this would be driven in part by Trump's success or failure uh, in November, but what does the Republican Party do moving away from Trump? What does it embrace from Trump and what does it try to distance itself from? I, I think it's, uh, it's all about how far the other side's uh, 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 offer is sufficiently repellent to keep uh, Republicans like us who lean in the direction of free trade right. on board uh, with a president who's used tariffs as a particularly blunt instrument uh, to try to change uh, particularly the course of relations with, with China. I think the key line from Trump's uh, speech was, Biden is a Trojan horse for socialism. Hmm. And what's interesting to me about that line is that I'm sure it's the first time that Donald Trump has ever said the words Trojan horse. Uh, but also, um, perhaps more importantly, it is plausible. It's plausible because there are prominent Democrats, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar, who, who really are democratic socialists, so whose position is, is very radical. And I, and I think it's plausible to say that, that, that Biden, who, who seems to come from the era of Ronald Reagan, actually from a slightly earlier era, he's kind of 1970s uh, Democrat, is a kind of front man for much more radical policies. And then, as John says, you look at what it is that the Democrats have on their agenda. And just in fiscal terms, it's massively uh, expansionary and wildly overambitious, considering the stretched public finances the United States already has. So I think when it comes to the crunch, when you look at the full range of issues, uh, those of us who think of ourselves as being conservative are going to put up with quite a lot more uh, of Donald Trump's uh, intemperate behavior, because we just can't stand the thought of the country being run by the Democrats as they're currently constituted. I think that's the, the key. I think there are two clearly different scenarios here. If Trump wins, I agree with Lani, there'll, there'll be a process of adaptation. Uh, the second terms are always a little different from first terms. Right. I don't think it's right, as many liberals claim, that Trump will somehow be unfettered by a re-election. He's already unfettered. He can't get more unfettered. Uh, but I think if, if, uh, if he loses, then there'll be a great attempt to regroup. Uh, but I don't think Trumpism will go away uh, just because Trump uh, is defeated. Waiting in the wings is another extremely important figure uh, in conservative media, Tucker Carlson. It's been very interesting to me how Carlson's ratings have held up and indeed soared when he's been most uh, combative, most critical uh, of Black Lives Matter. And his, uh, his monologues are kind of required viewing these days, I think. I, I would say that if there is a Ronald Reagan for a post-Trump era, it's actually Tucker Carlson. Remember, Reagan made his uh, political start in broadcasting. And I think it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how Carlson develops. He's a far more uh, plausible political figure than, than Don Jr., who did himself no favors, I thought, at the convention with, uh, let's just say, a somewhat supercharged speech. So Can I uh, weigh in on this one? Um, yes. So where, where do we go going forward, uh, looking at uh, what happens in the next four years and also past the next four years? Um, 
from our point of view, I think we have to state that the policies on immigration and trade are simply wrong. And, and that helps <laughs> if we think there's any rational force in, uh, in, in, in politics to think that the party will get over them uh, when it finds that, that stating these uh, falsehoods is no longer useful for attracting votes. Now, the Democratic Party states many falsehoods that it finds useful for attracting votes, and that I think will be true of the Republicans. Possibly, as Neil said, faster in loss than in winning. Let us remember that any administration, uh, you know, the president presides over a, a loose, uh, a, a, uh, you know, it's herding cats. The knives are out. Not everyone in the administration thinks that the trade and immigration policies are wise. I, I know the economists and they're mostly at each other's throats uh, on, on these questions and a, a very substantial portion uh, is there. You know, as, as uh, our, our institution's motto is ideas defining freedom. I, I think I got that wrong, which is terrible, but <laughs> freedom is the, you know, if you want to think of one uh, defining idea, that's it. And I, I have a great hope that that will become the centerpiece of the ideas going forward. I want to, but uh, as, I want to follow up what Neil said. Uh, there's an elephant in the room. There's a donkey in the room as well. The Democrats are clearly going for a caretaker government of the old guard trying to tamp down the revolutionary desires of the young guard. Uh, there are many historical precedents for this. Uh, they didn't end up well. Um, in some sense, the true battle, if, if, if there's a battle in the Senate as well, and just uh, what will happen if the Democrats win the Senate, get rid of the filibuster and have all three houses, then I think the young guard runs rampant. Uh, and that fear is sort of like the fear of the protesters who are coming to rich neighborhoods throwing Molotov cocktails saying, abandon your, your privilege. I wanna close with a, a thought on that speech, um, which bears on this point. It was a normally unremarkable speech a presidential candidate saying, here's what I did. I promised you I was going to do X, and I did X, uh, touting a list of policy achievements. Um, uh, some of them, you know, they were what he said he was going to do. Uh, and I was very interested that a lot of it was what we would normally think of just pot boiler, simple patriotism about how wonderful this country was. And hearkening back to westward expansion and our uh, ancestors who who went forth and, and he, he brought up Andrew Jackson as a wonderful person. Never before in history would these kind of sentiments have been a poke in the eye partisan jab, because of course, most of the Democratic Party does not think the Western expansion was a particularly good thing. Uh, but that kind of boilerplate uh, patriotism is now a very partisan question. And that bears on, on Neil's point. Uh, I, I don't, that, that is now a, uh, a Republican sentiment and not a Democratic sentiment. I think there's a lot of the voters in the middle of the country who are unwilling to take the very dim view of uh, our country and its past that is... Uh, and, uh, John, I, I completely agree with you. And the polling shows that when Trump says stuff like that, he gets 67% agreement. Uh, this is actually his strongest card. Also very interesting in light of previous conversations we've had that he went after cancel culture. Uh, and this is, I think, another, another uh, smart move uh, because there are lots of uh, liberals, uh, centrist uh, Democrat supporters who are 
deeply, deeply troubled by what is happening in American universities and, and by the way that the cancel culture that originated on campuses has spread out into corporate uh, and media life. So I, I think what was fascinating to me about the speech was that, um, and I think it was you who made the, the point, John, maybe, maybe also Bill, it was quite conventional. Uh, and this was, of course, exactly what was intended. I saw a number of commentators saying, oh, this is too long and boring. It was supposed to be long and boring. This was supposed to be Trump, uh, the, the president, uh, making the most of the White House uh, setting. And, and that's why I think if one sort of adds together the two conventions We're and asks what the net result will be, uh, my bet would be that the net result will be a, a beneficial one uh, to the Republicans uh, and that the mainstream media overrated the Democratic convention, oh, the uh, which I thought uh, was notable for the weakness of the, the key speeches, uh, as well, of course, as their shortness. Trump's, Trump's speech was much longer uh, than, than Biden's, but that, that was actually quite smart because it meant that Trump could hit a lot of issues that are likely to be vote winners in that contested middle ground on November 3rd. Well, the press seems to have forgotten, this is what Bill Clinton did time again in the 1990s. He would give these impossibly long State of the Union addresses, 90 minutes, and the commentators would come and say, my God, that went on forever. But it polled just remarkably efficient because he just did two things. He touched bases and he connected with the people on issues like school uniforms and welfare reform in ways he wanted to hear. But gentlemen, while we've been talking about the future, I want to take you to the past now to a minute. I want to take you to a speech that was given in Houston, Texas in the summer of 1992, that year's Republican National Convention. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war as critical to the kind of nation we shall be as the Cold War itself. For this war is for the soul of America. And in that struggle for the soul of America, Clinton and Clinton are on the other side and George Bush is on our side. Okay, Neil, change the name of the principles, but tell me what is different then versus now. Well, of course, to see a culture war coming was, was prescient indeed. It was not that obvious in, in 1992, was it? Uh, and now it has become one of the dominant features of, of the political landscape. And I think it is without question advantageous uh, to Republicans for this culture war uh, to be uh, central in the election. For, for Trump, the disastrous scenario is to have a referendum on his handling of COVID-19. Uh, it's not even great for him uh, if this is an election about the economy. But the more it's about the culture war, and I say culture rather than religious war, the better. Because what's very interesting about the American electorate is that uh, the, the issues that have become so central uh, to this culture war uh, cut across party lines. And a great many Democrats, uh, in fact, have rather conservative views on a, on a broad range of issues from affirmative action uh, to political correctness, uh, to the strange languages uh, that are introduced by the campus left, uh, to the whole complex of uh, issues around transgender rights. So in some ways, it's, it's actually been the right way to steer Republican politics, because this is a, it, this is a war they can win, that 
the truth is that the left may be dominant on American campuses, but that's about the only place that the, the left are really dominant in, in, in American life. Uh, if, if you ask the question, you know, can we get back uh, to Reagan? I think that is the wrong question because Reagan was able to, to essentially be a conservative who distanced himself from the religious right. He, he kept his distance throughout his presidency from that part of republicanism, but I don't think that was any longer viable after the Cold War mm. war ended. And I, and I ultimately think it's a winning card uh, for Trump, even if he's a somewhat implausible uh, uh, proponent of, uh, of cultural conservatism. So long, assuming, assuming that Trump does not lose this election and does not run again in 2024, Republicans will be looking for a new nominee in 2024. So let's pick up what Neil said. What should the party be looking for in a candidate? Well, look, I think the, the, some of it is really going to depend on, a lot of it's really going to depend on what happens this November. Right. I mean, it, it is, it's going to be much more challenging for the Republican Party to think about this question if, in some ways, if President Trump gets reelected, because then you've got four more years of, you know, the party being conformed to or the, the ideas of the party being conformed much more closely to where I think the president is. Um, so what they're looking for in 2024, I think we can't answer that question until after November. Mm -hmm. uh, I do think what they will be looking for, regardless of what happens to Trump, is a, is a certain amount of boldness in the statement of principles or in the statement of what the party is standing for and a statement of what the conservative movement is standing for. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the cultural conversation is very interesting because the, the dominant frame in the media and on the left is that Trump goes too far, that he shoots beyond his target, that somehow his language is not calibrated well. And I guess what I would say is, you know, that may be true to people on the left, on the far left, but I think to the broad majority of even moderate Democrats, let's say, they hear Trump and they actually hear elements of his message that resonate with them because they do believe that on the other end, things have gone too far. So hearing a messenger that's carrying a message that arguably is, let's say, too bold, mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people think of it that way. I think they may not like the tone, but the, but the substance of the message, I think, resonates with a lot more people than the media and others care to recognize. And so when the Republicans are looking for their next standard bearer, I think one of the lasting impacts of Donald Trump, win or lose in 2020, is this idea, and it's always been present in Republican politics. There's always been this idea that what the Republican Party needs is a bolder standard bearer. I think in 2024, that boldness is going to be rewarded again. Now, will it be rewarded in the form of someone like Don Trump Jr.? That I don't know. But I do think that there will be this, this idea that whoever the Republican standard bearer is in 2024, that person really does have to be able to stick up for a set of ideas, a set of principles in a way that uh, you know, may have been absent in the past. Buddy, can I just add one thing? The key job description has to include attractive to Hispanic voters because the, the Republicans cannot be a, an election-winning party uh, if they are essentially a party of, of white Americans. That's not a viable strategy, I think, beyond this, uh, this election, uh, if it's even viable, this election. So the key to the post-Trump Republican Party has to be to drive a wedge 
between those uh, elements of the Democratic Party that really are socialist or radical in other ways, and the many Hispanic Americans uh, who are alienated because they are in many ways socially conservative. And I think one of the very important things that we're not quite seeing at the moment is that the, the Hispanic communities or Latino communities, if you prefer, are deeply disenchanted with urban disorder and feel alienated by the message of Black Lives Matter. And that seems to me a huge opportunity for the next Republican candidate, whoever he or she is. Let me add, add to that, uh, Black Americans, uh, um, I think I think there's a genuine opportunity there who are not wokey leftist white campus types, the vast majority of them. Um, <clears throat> uh, Jews and Catholics um, are also discovering that maybe they don't have a home in the Democratic Party either, especially as it gets taken over by the religion of wokeness. What happens to the Republicans, I think, if Trump wins depends. Remember, it's not just a president. We focus on the president. It's an administration. Uh, one of the most dangerous things is the number of people who no longer work for Trump and the number of people who won't work for Trump. Uh, you need uh, somebody like Trump, like him or not like him, needs people around him to contain him, to translate his ideas into policy, to come up with good stuff. You know, the, <clears throat> the tax cuts, the deregulation, the good stuff that I think we like, all bubbled up from down below from very talented people working for Trump, and they will be the future of the party if he wins. Uh, I think there's a little bit of a danger of who's going to work for Trump now, in part because, and let me circle now down to the culture wars, uh, it's just it, um, lots of people think that their social reputations are going to fall apart if they work for Trump, and they're going to be attacked on Twitter mobs. They're going to be attacked by the Democrats. I mean, think about what a Senate confirmation hearing would look like if you uh, chose to work for the Trump administration. It's not a new cultural war. It's been going on at least since 1968. Uh, the, the look of it has changed. It's become much more radical, much more past Marxist. Uh, it, it's, it's, a new, it's a new phenomenon, the, the woke racialized identity stuff, but it is essentially the same cast of characters. And I disagree with Neil. It's, it's, it's not a war, it's an attempted revolution uh, from the inside. And it's, it is more dangerous than we think because it has already taken over all the institutions of civil society, all the foundations, all the universities, the public schools, the unions. Uh, it is a very, it's a politicized cult. And these are very powerful, uh, these are very powerful things. And they can take over even with an electoral minority. As one tiny example, in, and I think it's today's or yesterday's Wall Street Journal, the new California public school ethnic studies curriculum mandate is worth study. It is essentially indoctrination to vote for the Democratic Party and to become a, a warrior for this cult and to make sure you exclude anyone who even would say that they're Republican from civil society. Well, that's, that's an effective... Uh, revolution. And then that's, I think, the force that we're facing here. Gentlemen, we have just a couple minutes left on this. So I wanted to leave you with a very quick question for the three of you. And I'd like to show you, this is a reporter uh, on the scene in Kenosha reporting on the, uh, on the, uh, the rioting and the uh, unrest. Let's, let's see that shot. Christine, Laura, what you're seeing behind me is one of multiple locations that have been burning in Kenosha, Wisconsin, over the course of the night, a second night. If you notice the Chiron there, fiery but mostly peaceful protest. Uh, here's the question, gentlemen. Let's try to make this quick if we can. You're an American voter. You're trying to process what's going on in cities. And this gets back to what Neil said earlier about social media. Where do you go for information if you see phrases like fiery but peaceful protest? It's the betrayal of common sense 
right? I mean, you look at it and you think, what, what, on what earth does that make any sense at all? And, but, but this is the problem, is that then people go to social media to pick their own news sources, which then reinforce their views, which drives polarization further. So the, the challenge is one that's been created by the rise of social media, but also the polarization of American mainstream media. And so I don't have a great, I, I don't know that there is a great source because we're all going to go to the sources of media we trust and it's going to further reinforce our views. What do you think, John? Well, you wanted an example of how the institutions of civil society are taken over. <laughs> that's uh, by, by partisan, uh, partisan uh, uh, movement that that's it cnn is clearly spinning everything is everyone's spinning anything yes and this is the wonder of the free internet i i don't i i think it's great that we have this channel of the twitters and the facebook's where some facts actually can leak out from the normal control now uh you know i'm a free market economist if there's a demand for good unbiased news reporting then uh there ought to be a supply of it i can't wait to see the cnn Caron that says defeat, but mostly successful democratic campaign. Uh, it'll be the same basic uh, scenario, won't it? All of this is grist uh, to the Republicans' uh, mill. And I think it's, uh, of course, easy to find comparably strange Fox News uh, chirons. Uh, th these two cable news universes ma now match pretty closely the two parties. Uh, but uh, but Lanny's right. I mean, when you enter the internet in search of enlightenment, uh, it's an altogether more complex landscape. Because in the culture war, there aren't just two sides; there are about ten. Uh, and and in this uh, uh, morass, and I'm much more skeptical than John about the free internet. Unfortunately, voters are susceptible to a wide range of nutty conspiracy theories. And if there's one thing that uh, we haven't touched on, but we, we should in concluding, uh, if there's one thing that's truly remarkable, it's the polling on issues like the pandemic and, and the prospects of a vaccine, that the proportion of Fox News viewers who believe that Bill Gates is behind a conspiracy to implant mind-controlling chips through the vaccine will really shock you when you look at the polling. So uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation in this election cycle. I want to go back to where I began. What we see is not what a great many voters are seeing because this whole campaign is now mediated through an extraordinarily kaleidoscopic uh, lens, which is, which is the internet. And I'm not sure, unlike John, that that is a good thing. And we're going to end on that note, gentlemen. Thank you for a very lively conversation. And uh, Neil and Lonnie, congratulations. You managed to keep four children at bay. I was worried there for a minute for you, Neil. I thought we were going to lose you for a second, but uh, I trust all as well. <laughs> I did have an incursion. <laughs> okay. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, Lon He Chen, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, I'd like to thank you for watching. By all means, stay safe, stay strong, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you soon.